Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 1, the Adam and Eve Story, The History of Cataclysm by Chan Thomas. Um, this is being read off of archive.org, the Internet Archive. And this particular volume, um, as you may remember from the conclusion previous episode, um, includes the aftermath of the Adam and Eve story by Chan Thomas. Um, so season one is not over yet. It's just getting into the aftermath of the Adam and Eve story by Chan Thomas. And this is the beginning of that book. At the beginning, there's a little bit of information about Chan Thomas, the author. Dr. Thomas attended Dartmouth College and Columbia University graduating from the latter in electrical engineering. As a result of his research and analysis, since 1949, Dr. Thomas has become recognized as the world's leading authority in cataclysmology. His cross-correlation research in the fields of stratigraphy, vertebrate paleontology, radiology, oceanography, glaciology, seismology, paleophilology, earth magnetism, anthropology, and other related fields has demonstrated that the cataclysmological concepts as presented by Duluc in 1779 and Cuvier in 1812 are definitely more acceptable within international scientific circles than they had been previously. Dr. Thomas's definitive efforts in integrating the various earth scientists have distinguished him as the only American with such a specialized scientific forte. He devoted 20 years in the writing of the Adam and Eve story, which included seven years in retranslating Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He is the only person to have formalized the science of cataclysmology, achieved through his first cross-correlating known, accepted data toward proving or disproving whether cataclysms have happened, and then deriving the process of cataclysms, followed by the time schedule of cataclysms, and 15 years of research in finding their trigger. Aftermath of the Adam and Eve story by Chan Thomas To the wolves of the night, who on hearing the winds of the past, howl into the future. Life is a brief master, an episode, a tick of the clock. There is so little time to learn from the past. Aftermath Cataclysms affect us in every conceivable way imaginable. They leave nothing untouched. The years oncoming toward a cataclysm affect us in ways totally different from the years following a cataclysm. So few survive, far less than 1% of all life, that each who survives lives to tell the unique tale, whether survival was by planning or in intent or by sheer luck. I suppose we could call the years leading to a cataclysm the precursor, it is most fitting to devote some time to the precursor. There are definite signs of our traversing into it through the past few years. In any, here for, for, in any heretofore presentation on evolution, there has not been one dissertation concerning the effect of cataclysms on evolution. It is apropos that we include at least a short dissertation in this book, since a look at cataclysm-mutation interaction should affect our thinking on many other evolutionary aspects. Thirdly, there is a lasting historical aspect of the life of Jesus over which prehistoric Mayan or Naga 
has an important influence and, as you will see, we will be able to correct a long-held misconception we have had. Further, as it is quite apropos, we can review what Jesus had to say about cataclysms. Table of Contents Our Precursor Evolution Jesus' History Angels and UFOs Jesus and Cataclysms Afterthoughts Postlude After Effects The Author Recommended Reading What's Happening to Our Magnetic Field Our Precursor During 1967 to 68, I was on a special assignment with a large aerospace firm on an advanced research project, high in security. While on that project, I find myself conjuring up some questions as to the effect of human physiology when a human is placed in the extreme low density magnetic fields of outer space, outer meaning beyond the radiation belts, such as astronauts encounter halfway between the Earth and our moon. On my own time, I worked with molecular structure of proteins in the human body and on the possibility of the low-density magnetic field environment having a carcinogenic, cancer-generating effect. It only took me a few weeks and I arrived at two conclusions. First, the protein structure, such as in the muscles and connective tissues, would literally come apart after about three months in that environment. And second, in the same duration of time any person in that environment would be subjected to a general malignancy cancer from head to toes. I wrote a brief paper on the result of my study and submitted it to my supervisor. It was filed away and ultimately forgotten, and I was informed that it was not within the responsibilities of my task with the company. In 1968, there was an article on the front page of the Los Angeles Times about two scientists at Hanuman Medical College who had wondered about the same thing as I. Only they decided to find the answers through experimentation with mice. They put a batch full of mice, all genetically of the same strain, in aluminum cylinders about six inches or so in diameter, half in the magnetic field environment the same as we live in, and the other half in the magnetic field environment equivalent to being halfway between the Earth and our Moon. Both sets of cylinders have the same physical environment, the same number of male and female mice, the same food, the same lighting, the same play environment, and the same water supply. After three months, the mice in the low-density cylinders all suffered the same effects. First, they all simply came apart, all of the protein structure. And second, over 35% suffered visible cancers which had to be considered head to toes. No analysis was made of internal cancers. I was so shocked to learn that my conceptual work had been verified by experimental work that I immediately made a telephone call to the two scientists. They were equally shocked to learn of my work and surprised that I knew why the results had occurred. My supervisor was also shocked at the accuracy of my predictions. The scientists invited me to Hanuman Medical College to spend a week with them. My company cheerfully paid my traveling expenses. During my conferences with them in Philadelphia, they told me that there was something which was not released to the press and was not generally known. They hoped that I could help them with reasons for these results which disturbed them. The first thing they told me was that the mice turned criminal in their low-density magnetic field environment. Criminal, I exclaimed. 
How in the dickens do you tell me a mouse turns criminal, I asked. Very simple, was the answer. There are basic and cruelties for almost all mammals. Mice and humans are no exceptions. Cannibalism is the ultimate cruelty, and they turned cannibalistic. Even though they had plenty of the same food as the mice in the normal magnetic field strength cylinders, they indulged in cannibalism as a preference. The mice in the normal cylinders treated each other normally and ate only their normal food. He paused a moment. There's another thing which really confounds us, he continued. These same mice who turned cannibalistic indulge in forcible rape literally around the clock. That and murder are the other end cruelties. Is it possible that you can tell the difference between rape and forcible rape in mice, I asked? It seems impossible to differentiate in mice. Oh yes, he said, it happens all the time in animal world. For instance, sea lions and sea elephants, they use forcible rape commonly. In these mice, almost every act of sexual intercourse in the low-density cylinders was forcible rape, whereas in the normal cylinders, we never saw it. Of course, we must assume it may have happened when we weren't looking. Of course, in humans, it's easy to differentiate between forcible rape and rape. Legally, it may not be so easy to differentiate, he replied, but morally, I guess it's easy. But what we're interested in in here is why they resorted to forcible rape just because the environment of a low-density magnetic field. We were hoping you could give us at least a concept to go on. I told him that my work did involve the study of legends concerning civilizations in the years leading to cataclysms, when the Earth's magnetic field was decreasing at an increasing rate as they approached the null zone and in every instant it appeared that criminally, essentially man's inhumanity to man appeared to become overwhelming. Even the Navajo Indians spoke of it in their legend of their approach to a cataclysm, but they called it adultery. It's quite possible that their definition of rape in any form, be it forcible or not, was included in the term adultery. After all my study, it seemed strange that it had not entered my mind that rape and forcible rape are part of the overwhelming criminality in the precursor period preceding a cataclysm. Later, I concluded that it was because I was searching for facts that had never appeared before me in print. To assume it to be a natural part of the overwhelming criminality, however, seemed to be a proper assumption. After some consideration, I gave them my conclusion. I would commit that a lowering or lowered magnetic field environment could give its occupants a sense of impending doom. Certainly there would be a feeling that something out of control was destroying them, so why not get what they want irrespective of consequences? In the case of humans, those without empathy turn criminal first. In the case of animals, it is probably proper to assume that there is little or no empathy there to start with. After my trip home from Philadelphia, I examined statistics from around the world. The United Nations was reporting huge increases of rape in every nation, regardless of economic status, intellectual level, social mores, governmental status, family structure, plus where their nation were at either in temperate zone or in the torrid zone, and regardless of ethnicity or religion or whether a nation had an official state of religion. The staggering rise in rape worldwide was a leading factor in the rise of the general crime rate around the world. In the 1960s and the 1970s, I was giving speeches on the subject of cataclysmology all over the United States. 
I remember predicting after presenting the whole picture by that 1990 crime would be at such a level in our country that the law enforcement agencies of our nation would not be able to cope with it. Those of us who are old enough to remember to see everyday traffic violations that would have immediately drawn citations now ignored by the police. They are simply too busy. It has gotten so that the detectives are so busy that they cannot investigate your case if you are a victim of an attempted murder. They are too busy investigating actual murders. If you are a victim of a $100,000 or $400,000 fraud, they cannot be bothered with you. They are too busy investigating frauds in the billions of dollars. That includes attorney generals and staffs, plus district attorneys and staff, plus the SEC and federal courts. The crime side includes confidence artists, top executive bankers, savings and loans executives, management personnel, family men, thieves, burglars, addicts, those who sell to addicts, murderers in almost any level of society, from notables to homeless. This brings up an extremely important issue, as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. The time will come when you must decide whether you desire that you and your family should survive the next cataclysm. You will have to decide how to survive over the long term afterward, if you do survive. You must pick a place to survive where survival is possible, the most likely place being on the eastern side of a mountaintop, which will be accessible when the time comes. Most important of all, you will have to find a way to protect yourself and your family through the criminally worsening precursor years and the following aftermath years. Surely you will have to have provisions, tools, lumber, and supplies with which to build a storm refuge from the cataclysm. Clothing, first aid, medical books, binoculars, firewood, means to start a fire, and a library with which to teach the young. Include the Seba Pharmaceutical Volumes by Frank Netter, M.D. Further include my book, Natural Childbirth Self-Taught, the only book written on the subject, and I have been teaching natural childbirth for 43 years. In the preceding paragraph, I started by saying, most important of all, etc. How will you protect your family against attacks when the police can't? How you protect your wife and daughters against gang rape and murder if the murdering gangs pay you a sudden visit. Those who have not prepared for a cataclysm far outnumber those who have. Those who have not will want what you have and will kill you to get it. Both shortly before and after the cataclysm, you will be besieged by those begging you to share your provisions. They will appear to be nice families, wanting to share, wanting to help, and wanting what you have. Believe me, they will kill you to get it. If you look at history, let alone prehistory, when those who have no protection and have nots will kill the haves to get what the haves have, and they will destroy to get it. Are you ready to make an instantaneous decision to protect yourself and family, a decision which will make the lives and safety of yourself and your family inexorable? If you wait to see if your visitors have evil intent so that afterward you can take protective action, you and your family will wind up murdered, raped, and dead. And history dictates that you will have, you will be tortured just as a means of supplying your visitors with pleasure. Survival is not a nice or easy picture to paint when all the forces intended to protect and defend you have completely vanished. If you live at the time of a cataclysm, you have time to prepare for it. You will have to assume attitudes and perspectives, principles and actions, and willingness to act in 
multifaceted ways you never dreamed you would in order to survive. You will have to abide by the law until there is no law, then survive by the rules necessary to make survival possible under all potential onslaughts. How do you know when it is time for a cataclysm? The answer is simple. Go, go to a store soon where you can purchase a top quality magnetic compass. One wherein you can lock the north, the free north-south indicating needle in any position you desire. The bigger it is, the better you are off. Then purchase an accurate stopwatch. Take them home and put them by your bedside. Have a paper under the compass with two diameters marked off at 90 degrees to each other in a circle larger than the diameter of your compass. Put your compass on the paper centered within the circle. Unlock the compass needle and set it on north. Set the compass case so that its north coincides with the compass needle and place the paper underneath so that one of its diameters is on the north-south line of the compass needle and the compass case. Tape the paper in place. Put the compass back so that the needle is pointed north along the north-south line on the paper underneath. Then to bed and have a good night's sleep. In the morning, hold the compass steadily as it is positioned in the circle beneath it and lock the needle in place. Then turn the compass left to right 90 degrees. Use the 90 degree line on the paper underneath as a guide. Hold the case absolutely still, then release the needle. The needle will then swing toward north and oscillate back and forth, diminishing in its swing a little each time. With a stopwatch, observe the time necessary for the compass needle to stop oscillating from its release time to your first quiet settle down time. There will come a day, if indeed we're going to enter the galaxy's magnetic null zone, as soon as the mathematics tables indicate we will, that you will find the settling down time increasing, as the needle's oscillations will become sluggish. It could be that the time for settling down will stay nearly the same, but the number of oscillations required for the needles to settle down will decrease. So perhaps in addition to recording the stopwatch time duration, also record the number of oscillations required for the needle to settle down. Either way, you will discern by your data that indeed the Earth's magnetic field strength has decreased to a critical level. Now, take your family and your entire survival stories to your retreat. I hope you will not have waited this long to pack it and get it ready to go. Leave behind everything you can do without be sure to take with you whatever instruments and the supplies of those instruments needed for your protection and survival. Be sure your family is well trained in their use. There is a mathematical law that any predictions based on extending existing data are subject to the possibility of a fifth degree error. This means that any prediction for the time of the next cataclysm is subject to that error and nothing can be done about it. Do you know that the law applies equally to the presidents and the House representatives and the Senate's ability to form an annual federal budget? They can't fix a budget and stick to it. The best they can do is guesstimate. In the case of the magnetic compass, it experimentally establishes a known data point each day, so you will always know within a day whenever your prediction should be. If 2000 AD passes by without a cataclysm, the best thing for you to do is to stick with it and maintain your vigil. When the day comes, you will be happy to have advanced notice 
as short or as long as it might be. It was found that in Tiwanaku, the populace was caught entirely off guard with people doing what they normally do. Everyone was caught completely surprised and the unbelievable magnitude and suddenness of the maelstrom of a cataclysm's precipitous onslaught. If you should choose to go all out with your survival preparation, do decide to indulge in some heavy work in pouring concrete, with walls and ceilings up to four feet thick with extremely heavy steel reinforcing on the eastern side of a peak of a high top mountain. If you can, pick two or three or four families who will share your survival desires with you to the extent that they will work with you in preparing for survival in the cataclysm. Be sure to have families who can get along extremely well. Have good, strong teenage children who can be friends. Have record-keeping capabilities to keep records of marriages, births, and deaths. Have family trees for records also. At least one father should be ordained non-denominationally. And be sure... No one's a drinker, smoker, or narcotic user. Bear it in mind that the odds for survival are mighty, mighty low. Are mighty, mighty not low. They're lower than winning the publisher's clearinghouse $10 million. Of course, those odds include the millions upon millions of persons who think the whole concept of a cataclysm is a bunch of rot and don't even try to prepare for survival. Perhaps the best way to look at the odds for survival is to look at how many survivors. Perhaps the best way to look at the odds for survival is to look at how many survive out of those who really prepare for survival. We can't even estimate that, for who knows from past experience. It all depends upon the best efforts, possibly in planning and preparing for the cataclysm, cataclysm, and post-cataclysm. Structurally, energy-wise, tool-wise, medically, spiritually, travel-wise, maintenance-wise, security-wise, communications-wise, food supply-wise, and don't forget the can opener. What to take to read is vitally important. What tools are necessary to make to take is of ultimate importance. If you did not survive, do remember that death is but a stepping stone. Everyone goes through its portal. Further, what a way to go. How many humans ever get to see a cataclysm? And after you go through those portals, there's a peace that defies description that passes all understanding. I would be surprised if I see you there. I wouldn't be surprised if I see you there. And further, I wouldn't be surprised if we have a nice talk. And that is the end of the first chapter of The Aftermath of the Adam and Eve story, The History of Cataclysms.